Amen. All right. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I want you to take God's word and read with me in your most humble and reverential voice, knowing that we're reading the word of an internal God. Would you do that with me this morning? All right. Don't rush through it. It's a short psalm. Are you ready? Say amen. amen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning asking that you would be with us and that you would minister to us, that you would obscure the preacher. Lord, we pray a simple prayer that's been prayed many ways and at many places, which is that the Spirit of God would take and use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God, all to the glory of God. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, and the redeemed of the Lord said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, some of my brothers who have come before me have spent some considerable time giving you general information about the Psalms. They've explained to you the sort of nature of the Psalms, the flow, the ebb and flow of the Psalms. And for you who are new to us, I do want to just share some tidbits about the Psalms. It's 150 Psalms that are basically broken up into five books, five sections, if you will. The Psalms deal with the range of the human emotion be it anger, grief, despair, anxiety, anything you can deal with as a human being, you can find in the Psalms. Perhaps that's why many of us relate to the Psalms. We find peace and, 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 and consoling in the Psalms because they, they give us a place where we can express ourselves without being judged. Whatever you're going through, I guarantee a psalmist has gone through worse. And you can see those things. You can experience those things. And you can see it from a God perspective. Nothing worse than going through suffering and not seeing God in the midst of your suffering. Amen? And so the Psalms give us a place where we can see the human emotion. Uh, the Psalms are divided, like I said, five books. The last five Psalms are what we call the Hallelujah Psalms. They, they call the people of Israel to praise Yahweh. They all hand in Alleluia. Praise Yahweh. They all point towards the Messiah. Now, while every psalm isn't technically messianic, they all point to the Messiah. And I could even argue that every scripture is messianic because they all point to who? Jesus. Remember the road to Emmaus where Jesus says all of scriptures. He opened up the scriptures to show them all the things that were what? Concerning him. He even says that the scriptures testify of who I am. So indeed, all of Scripture and all of the Psalms point towards the Messiah. And so Psalm 1, which we are in this morning, while it's not technically a messianic psalm, it has great undertones of the Messiah. He is the only true blessed man. And our blessing comes as a result of his blessedness. Amen? 
And so Pastor Jahil stole a little bit of my thunder. You owe me 10 minutes of study, brother. <laughs> the truth is, we have an alien blessedness. And so we see in this text, as we look at this psalm, and Psalm 1 is, is usually, some of the Hebrew tradition says Psalm 1 and 2 are usually read together as one psalm. They serve as an introduction into the book of Psalms. I would even argue that Psalm 1 is pivotal to the right and proper understanding of the entire Psalms. So no pressure on me this morning, right? No, no pressure to, to open up this Psalm. Psalm 1 opens up and says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. It says here that he, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law of the law he meditates day and night. It says he is like a tree that is planted by the streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and the leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but like chaff, they are driven away by the wind. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalm opens up with a blessing. Psalm 1 opens with a blessing. Psalm 2 closes with a blessing. And there's a lot of themes that are connected with these two psalms that form what is called an inclusio, which is a way that the writer shows you that these two psalms are written together and meant to be read together. But Psalm 1 opens up. It's as though the psalmist looks at this man that is blessed and says, congratulations, you are a happy man. That's the definition of blessedness, to be happy. Now, in our day and time, happiness doesn't have the, the weight that it has in biblical times. Everybody wants to be happy. Pharrell Williams made that popular. Every single body wants to be happy. And happiness is akin to now a feeling, a fleeting emotion. But biblically, happiness is your condition. Which brings me to my point that I'm going to sort of hang our thoughts on four movements that I see in this text. So if you're taking notes or you kind of want to follow along, there are four distinct movements that I see in this text. First, we're going to see the condition of the man. He's blessed. And we will see the conduct of this man, his do's and his don'ts. And we're going to see the comparison of this man, what he is compared to. And then we will see the contrast of this man, what he is not. Does that make sense? So we're going to see the condition, the conduct, the comparison, and the contrast. Is that up on the screen? I don't have eyes behind me. Okay, good. The condition of this man, he is blessed. The normal Hebrew word that is used for blessed is the Hebrew word baruch. That's not the word that is used here. Baruch means to be blessed, to have praises on you, to have favor from God. Here, this text is the word ashray, which means to be happy. And when you're defining words in Hebrew, we have what are called concrete meanings and abstract meanings. So it's not as simple as just looking at a concordance and trying to find a meaning, but you have to go a little deeper to the roots. And for our culture, where most of our names don't have meanings, um, it's hard to understand that. Our words have meanings. They have deep meanings. Meanings are not relative, but they're very concrete. The picture you're meant to see here when you see blessed is the word straight, level, balance. This man is straight. Now, growing up in the hood, every time somebody said, how you doing? We always answered, I'm straight. Didn't know I've been speaking Hebrew all my life. I'm straight. <laughs> but it means to be right with God, to be in right standing with God. 
This person is straight. Such a person who is right with God is indeed a happy person. If you are right with the king of the universe, what do you have to be sad about? So the psalmist pulls back and says, this man who is straight with God is happy. Does that make sense? It's a condition, not a feeling. You know the difference? Feelings go and come. Your condition in God is permanent. That's an amen moment for Christians because we understand that regardless of what happens, the Lord is who sustains our happiness. In fact, this message could be the source of happiness. This is where true happiness is found. So this is the condition of the man. Now we see the conduct of the man. Now, quick note, man here does not mean males. It means person. It's a way that the Bible says all of mankind. So it's not just saying that only males can be happy as much as males may like that. But it's saying that all of mankind, this person, so you could easily interpret this, oh, the happiness of this man. Now, I remember my professor would always remind me that this is in the plural form. So this is all the happinesses of this man, the many joys of this man who is in right relationship with God. This is his condition. Now we see his conduct. They give us three things that he does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. And he doesn't seat, sit in the seat of scoffers. And there's two ways you could take this. One way is to see these as synonyms. And so when you look at your text, you see way. When you see, uh, you, you, see, you see walk, you see stand, you see sit. That are those synonyms? That those are all synonymous to say the same thing. So when you see counsel and you see way and you see seat, those are also synonyms. And wicked, sinner, and scoffer, synonyms. That's one way to look at it. So that the thrust of this passage is that you are asked to not be directed, defined, or detained by sin. And, and I like that. The point of the text is that your way of life should not match the way of life of sinners. That the blessed man does not conduct himself like the world. It makes sense. The second way you could take this is to see this as a progression. That this man walks, he stands, and then he sits. It's an increase in comfort with sin. And this man increasingly progresses deeper and deeper in his comfort with sinfulness and ungodliness. That's a way to look at it, and I, I tend to lean that way because even if you look at it, it's, it's as though you first, you, you give audience to it, then you give attention to it, and then you give attendance to it. Does that make sense? And so you start off listening to the advice of the wicked. That counsel is more important than God's counsel. You start little, little compromises here and there. Then you start to walk and, and stand with them. Now they have your attention. And then you, you begin to sit. Notice it didn't say sit with, but it says sit in the seats of scoffers. You become them. You become the very thing that you, you said you wouldn't. I, I know the progression of sin personally. She said hi. I said hi. Well, I'm married, but she's not. And I'm just trying to minister to her. I'm just trying to evangelize. You, then you start making your way around to where she does say hi. You start making your way around the office. And, and perhaps you even say, let's go out to lunch. Harmless lunch. You begin to make compromise. Or perhaps he's married and you want to date him. 
you don't want to date him, rather, and you just want to be friends. And she say, he's just a friend. And you, you want to be friends. You just want to, you want to get to know each other a little bit. And again, I'm just trying to bring him to the Lord. The Bible says, be at peace with all men. I'm just trying to be with peace with this specific man. Compromises. Little by little. I remember watching this one program, and there was a, a drug addict, and she was confessing her testimony. She wouldn't have called it that, but she was talking about her addiction and how far it took her. And she began to say, she said, when she first started getting high, she said to herself, I'd only get high on weekends. Then she said, I'd only get high when things get hard. And then, then, then she said, I, I'd never lie to get high. I'd never steal to get high. I'd never rob. I would never betray confidences to get high. Finally, she has on her list, she says, I'll never prostitute myself to get high. She said she was basically making a list of everything she would eventually do to feed her sin. I know what that feels like. Friend, I know what it's like to make little adjustments in your convictions. To make little modifications. And then before you know it, you feel the erosion of sin and you don't even know who you're looking at in the mirror anymore. Sin will keep you longer than you ever intended for it to keep you. It will cost you more than you ever intended or are willing to pay. This blessed man doesn't even walk with it, let alone stand with it, let alone sit with it. The happy man conducts himself. He does not walk in their counsel. He does not stand in their way. And he surely does not sit with them. There's a progression of sin that we have to be careful of. So this is his conduct. This is the things he doesn't do. It's funny because sometimes we Christians just want to focus on the things we can do sometimes. And, and, and all these don'ts are, are like, these are rules. But it's not that the rules make you blessed. It's that because God has blessed you, you conduct yourself. It's not a cause and effect. It's an inference and evidence. And based on the evidence of your action... We know you're blessed. This is what the psalmist does. He looks at this man. He sees the final picture and says, happy is that man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or the wicked. So we see the conduct. Now we see what he does do. Notice there are three things he doesn't do, but there's only one thing that he does do. What's that? He meditates. Notice it didn't say he delights. He says his delight is in. He's describing him that he does delight. But he's saying the thing that he does because he delights in it is what? He meditates on the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates what? Once a week? Twice a month? Biannual? Try? He meditates day and night. The psalmist here doesn't make a distinction between your desire and your devotion. If you say you love God and you say, brother, I can't find time to get in the text. The psalmist says your line is because you don't desire God. You make time for what is important to you. You make time for what you desire. Nobody had to tell me how to sin. I was desirous of sin. This blessed man desires the law of the Lord, and therefore he meditates. To desire means to be pulled into it, to be bent into it. He, is, he has a proclivity, a predisposition into the word of God. And then he meditates on it day and night. What's it mean to meditate? 
Again, when you're thinking about words in Hebrew, you're thinking abstract meaning and concrete meaning. So the abstract meaning means to murmur, to repeat, to ponder, to think on, to talk about it to yourself over and over. So he talks about the word of God over and over. He repeats it himself to himself daily. Some of us, we read the word at 7 a.m. and about 7 p.m. You don't remember what you read, right? Am I by myself? The only unsaved person in here, huh? Sometimes two minutes after you read, you can't remember. But this blessed man meditates. He, he keeps on rehearsing the goodness, the truths of God, even in the face of adversity. That's the abstract meaning. The concrete meaning is a lion who is cooning over his prey. It's of an animal that eats, regurgitates, eats, regurgitates, and is cooning. You ever seen a lion eat? You ever seen a lion eat? They will get every part of that meat off the bone. You try to take the food out of a lion's hand, you will quickly be absent in the body and present with the Lord. <laughs> Is that how we feel when it comes to the word of God? Is there a dogged, ferocious appetite for God's word that if the phone rings, no, not Twitter today, no, I'm with the Lord. Some of us are looking for excuses to get out the text, so you keep looking at your phone like, hey, whoa, somebody call me, hope somebody. But this, 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 this is a picture of somebody who has a ferocious appetite. His fervency for the Lord leads to his frequency in the word. Do you get that? His passion leads to his reading of the text day and night. Now, you have to keep in mind, in this time, in this historical context, they didn't have Bibles available for everybody. We got like 8 million versions right now. They had one. And, 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 and sometimes the only people that had it were the priests, the people in the temple, and the rich people who could afford to actually have papyrus put together. So this actually calls to mind a memorization of scripture. They memorize it. Remember a few months ago when Pastor T had us, I wish we'd do that again. Remember we, that wasn't an indictment. You made me feel bad right there. She said, yeah. So you get on your business, Pastor. Um, but, but, that was helpful, and I love it because John Piper said it this way. He said, when I get old and see now, I'm not reading the text. I want to call back those things that the Lord has placed in my spirit. And so I memorize the text so that if my vision goes as I get older with age, and my hearing goes as I get, I can remember and recall. There are people who have suffered from dementia who can recall scripture. They lock it in their system and they think on it and ponder on it day and night. One of the passages that I love so much, there are two specifically that I love so much that deals with what it means to meditate is, is Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Is that right? Why does that sound weird? Deuteronomy? <laughs> Sorry. The word that starts with D, one of them, one of them Pentateuch. Papers. Anyway, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, one of the most pivotal passages in Israel. Look at it real quick with me. It's worth looking at. Deuteronomy 6, and particularly verse 6. I want you to see a biblical picture of meditation. Because without fail, having had the opportunity to walk quite a few brothers through recovery from sexual immorality and sexual addiction, having been redeemed from it myself, we sit down and I have what is called an intake meeting. 
started to ask questions. What have you done in the past that have worked and hasn't worked? Nine times out of 10, the word of God is never mentioned. The meditating on God's word, I wonder if it's because we have a low view of the power of God's word. It's, I've done these practical things, which are important. But then I ask them, what about your devotional life? Oh, yeah, I don't have time for that. You don't have time to be freed from your sin. The very word of God is what saves and sanctifies. And I tell them, I said, but I ain't got no secret for you except to stay and abide and meditate on the word. And without fail, those who hear it are freed in God. I'm not saying it's an easy process. There's a lot of changing of your conduct so that your condition can match your conduct. But invariably, that never comes up. And I'm always fascinated by that, that as Christians who believe in God, who say we profess to believe in God, the word of God is the very last thing, if at all, that we actually go to. Deuteronomy 6. This context-wise is Israel being um, given um, instructions by Moses. They're, they're entering the, the promised land, if you will. And the Lord is trying to ensure that there is a, pro, pro, a progeny. Is it progeny? Why are my words missing this morning? Is it progeny? Okay. There's, there's a generation of those who would love God, who would know God in the future. And so the Lord says, this is how you do that. Watch it, what he says. He says, in these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Watch this. You shall talk to them when they sit in your house, when they walk in the way, when they lie down, when they rise. You will bind them as a sign on your head. You will bind them as frontless on your eyes, and you shall write them on your doorpost and on your gate. Do you get the picture? You need to be in the word saturated day and night. Remember when I first met my wife, she had a Jeep Grand Cherokee, and I walked in that car, and it was post-its everywhere. Psalm 8, Psalm 9. I was like, girl, you all right? <laughs> I was, next thing I was, exper- I was expecting was she had aluminum foil on her head or something. Like, I, I didn't know what to expect. And, and, I realized, and, and I realized that what she was doing was saturating herself. And so as she drives, in case you are one of those people that like to have road rage, it's really hard to have road rage when a post-it of Psalm 20 is right in front of you. <laughs> And so she saturated her car with all these posters, and it was, it, it, was, it was a beautiful chaos. It was everywhere. And it pointed at people who are willing to do whatever it takes to get that word into their spirit. Because the word is that important to you, you would get it everywhere. We set reminders for all kinds of things. We never set reminders to get into the Bible. Look at your calendar. Is there anything on there that says devotional time? Your calendar and your checkbook are very indicative of what's important to you. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Deuteronomy is a good text to talk about meditation. Another text that I really love is Proverbs chapter 3. You don't have to go there, but I'll read it to you. Proverbs 3, 1 through 6 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years and life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and goodness in the sight of God and man. One of my favorite 
portions here is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And watch this. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your way straight. Meditation is acknowledging the Lord in all of your ways. This man's condition is blessed. His conduct is godly. Because he meditates on God. Day and night, he delights in the law of the Lord. Next thing I want us to take a look at is the comparison of this man. He is compared to what? Look at verse 3. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf do not wither. The image that we are meant to see here of a tree is stability and strength. And he is planted in the water. This is where this gets exciting, and I hope you get excited with me on this, is that the tree is likened to the man. As the tree is in the streams of waters, plural, streams of waters, canals of waters that are coming from each direction, meaning the tree is ever nourished, so is the man who is planted and rooted in God's word. You see, the nourishment of the tree and the life of the tree is dependent on what? The streams of water. So is the life of the blessed man. The tree's root systems are dug deep into the stream of water. And watch this. The word here is not just planted. It's transplanted. Meaning that God intentionally or someone intentionally placed the tree where it's sure that the tree will be fed. Transplanted. Supplanted. The man who is delighting in God's word and meditating on it is like a tree that is planted in its very neat, its very substance, its very sustenance. He gets fed day and night in this word. So he is strong. He is stable because he's on a stable foundation. The stability of the man is not in the integrity of the man, but in the integrity of his foundation. His root system digs deep into God's word. So that's why whatever come what may, whether drought or no drought, whether rain, whether sun, he is stable in the Lord because he's fixed in the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. It's a beautiful picture, beautiful imagery. His root system digs deep. I love the way Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 17, 7 says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And whose trust is the Lord. Get that. He makes sure he makes it clear. We ain't just asking you to trust in the Lord, but God himself is the trust. For he will be like a tree planted, supplanted in water that his roots extend into the streams. Watch what it says here. Well, it doesn't say here that because his roots extend that he'll never go through hard times. But he says here, and he will not fare when the heat comes when the scorching sun shows up he's not afraid even though it may hurt it may batter him he is rooted in God so he withstands so his fruit comes at a season and so his leaf does not wither because he is what he is planted and rooted in the law of the Lord oh man I was expecting a little more happiness than that but okay in the words of D.L. Moody the trees in God's garden are evergreen. They don't wither. Though the scorching sun may come, though there might be a drought on the surface, their sustenance, their life is not dependent on superficial things, it's dependent on the root in God. Does that make sense? They're not superficially happy, they're happy in the core. 
And so this man is planted. He's comparison is he's likened to a tree. Uh, this does not mean there isn't hard times. As I said, this, this does mean that he has the ability, because he is in God, to withstand the vicissitudes of life. The ebbs and flows of life do not bother him. They actually grow him. A word here about the word prosper, because he prospers. This text has been used to promote the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth gospel, which hurts my feelings because my people in Africa are being pillaged and enslaved once again. It's one of the reasons why I've got together with a couple of brothers who are African and we're trying to bring the gospel sound doctrine to many people. Amen. Because my people are being hurt all over again, being crushed all over again by this imported junk that comes from the states. The pastors have now replaced the witch doctors and so now people don't still go to God. Instead of going to the witch doctor, now they go to the pastor who's doing exactly the same thing. Prosperity here is defined by God. Prosperity is not defined by the human, the pastor, the preacher. It's defined by God. And what prosperity looks like in this text and in the life of the believer is that hard times will come. But all things work together for those who love God and who are called according to his will. And his will is to make you look like God, look like Jesus Christ. And last time I checked, Jesus did not avoid suffering. And he surely wasn't wealthy. That gospel has no place in the pulpit. Amen. God. True prosperity is defined by God. Notice what we see in this text is that this tree grows and its fruit comes out in its season. It's seasonal. It's not an immediate fruit. It takes time. It takes time. And that time may not be on this side of salvation. Amen. So your best life, if it's now, then you're headed to a warm getaway. If this is the best that life has to offer you at this point, where you are headed is not fun. And there ain't no streams of water there because it's dry. This man is compared to a tree that prospers. His prosperity is dependent on where he's planted. And his planted is dependent on God. To say you delight in the word of God is another way of saying you delight in God himself. God is the one who defines prosperity and it looks different for everybody. But what is the same is that here the word prosperity has to do with maturing and growing and breaking through. If it ain't hard, you don't have to break through, do you? I mean, that's just easy, right? If something is easy, there's no need to break through. There's no need to advance. If there's no war, there's no need for the military to what? To advance. And so in this text, the understanding is that prosperity is done in the midst of hard times. That's how God grows his people. And the last time I checked, still the best fertilizer for growing trees is manure. Let that work on you for a second. You're going to have to go through some manure. Amen. There will be some going through some hard times. As a matter of fact, God's wisdom is that those hard times are very much built to make you prosper. You are fighting the very things that God is using to grow you. I love the way that the text reads out and shakes out in the Greek where it says all things work. It says literally that God causes all things. God 
employs all things. They are his workers. They are punching in time and time and a half to frustrate you so that you can look more like Jesus. You said overtime? Amen. It's been, it's been rough, ain't it? <laughs> hey, that came from your belly. I felt she like time and time again. <laughs> the Lord puts us through things and we put ourselves through things. But the beautiful thing is that your sanctification is not dependent on how great and how low your sin is. That in God's providence, your very sin can and is used to grow you. My humility at this point in life is because of the manure that the Lord has allowed me to go through. I suspect it might be the same for you. It's amazing how much grace you have when you fall flat on your face. It's amazing how much gracious you are to people when you realize that you are not such a much and your stuff does stink. We see the comparison of this man. He's like a tree. So we've seen the condition, the conduct, and the comparison. And now here we see here in text, in verse 4, the contrast. It says, the wicked are not so. Literally, it says, not so the wicked, not so. It's a double negative. It's making an impact. It's letting you know that they don't look anything. What are they not so like? They're, they walk in the counsel of the ungodly. They stand in the place and the path of sinners. They, their delight is not the law of the Lord, but their delight is their own will. And so they're not so. They're not like this blessed man. You could call them the cursed man. The term wicked here is a generic term for speaking with anybody that doesn't have God in their life. That's why some of your texts might possibly say ungodly. That's how I learned the verse. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. These are the people who are without God. And so he says that if you don't have God in your life, you are not steady and strong and sustainable like the tree. Because you're not planted in the streams of water. You're planted in a fallow ground that gets no water, no irrigation. And so you're not so. And he says, therefore, he says, but, but they are like what? Chaff. You know what chaff is? So that when, when, when the farmers grow wheat, they, cut the, they, they harvest the wheat. And they harvest the wheat and they take it to what's called the threshing floor. Can't tell you how many sermons, prophetic sermons I've heard on the threshing floor. <laughs> But they take them to the threshing floor. And what happens on the threshing floor is that the cows and the mules, they come and they begin to stump and thresh. Or go the name threshing floor. They begin to thresh on the wheat. And then this thin layer called a husk, a chaff, falls off. You pick it up, it's very flimsy. It has no substance. It's nothing to it. You could easily just let it go and it will blow out in the wind. He says, unlike the strong tree that's able to withstand the pains, the plights, and the problems of life, the wicked who are not in the Lord are like chaff that are easily blown away. Now, this is a great picture of the final harvest. Because when you are having the wheat, you, you let the wheat and chaff, they, they grow together. They're part of each other. And then the threshing comes. And then the Lord in his glory separates the wicked from the righteous. It's a beautiful picture of the end times that the Lord is finally and faithfully going to finally get rid of all sin. That's a good thing. That there is coming a day when the Lord separates the wicked finally from the godly. The imagery here is very, very pregnant. It is showing that 
this man, this blessed man in view, this happy man, this man who is straight with the Lord, will withstand the times. But unlike it, even though it may look like the unrighteous are flourishing, even though it may look like they are gaining and they are being fed, as David said, their bellies are being full, but in the long run, they are just but chaff, which would be finally blown away in the judgment of the Lord. And you see that a little later. And so they are chaff, they are blown away, they're driven away. I can't help but notice that the word wind here is also sometimes used for spirit. And that at the presence of the spirit of the Lord, the ungodly cannot stand. And that when the glory of God is in a place, the wicked cannot stand. It's a beautiful imagery here of God. The Bible says that the world flees from the face of the glory of God. Because he's awesome and wonderful and he is holy. So we see the contrast in there. And it says here, therefore, why for? Well, whenever you see therefore, you ask wherefore, right? You know that, right? Right? No? I'm the only one ever gone to black church? No? <laughs> whenever there's a therefore, there's also a wherefore, right? Because what is it there for? Does that make sense? And so he says here, because they are like chaff, right? The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, there's two ways that you can take this. You could take this as the ongoing judgment of God on the wicked, as in the Lord at any time can judge the wicked, even in this present age. The reason I don't lean that way is because what we have learned, and if anything has shown us, is that it seems like the wicked are gaining. And so you see all through the scriptures that the people of God keep asking, Lord, how long? Lord, how long before you, 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 you fix these people? How long before your glory is shown? How long before your judgment comes? This cries all, all the way through Revelation, where the Bible says that the spirits of the holy ones are crying, Lord, Maranatha, how long do come and bring your judgment? So we know that this cannot maybe just mean a temporary or temporal judgment. But here in the text... And you see it a little later, but there's a definite article that's there, right? It doesn't say a judgment, nor does it say judgment. As a term, there's a, there's a preposition that goes before this word in the original language that makes it a definite. In other words, I'm talking about a specific judgment. Well, what judgment could that be? That's the final white throne judgment. That like chaff, even though for a season, chaff and wheat look similar. Even though for a season chaff is growing with the wheat, there is coming the final judgment of God. Where the chaff will be blown away and the wheat will remain. The question that the people have to always ask is, am I chaff or am I wheat? Perhaps you're here, you've never met the Lord. Your destiny is chaff. If you do not have the Lord as your personal savior and your righteousness is built on you and what you have done, the indictment of scripture is that you are chaff that cannot stand in the judgment. Conversely, if you are here and you are God's, you must continue to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, but to be happy in the fact that your future is sealed by the Holy Spirit and that you're not chaff. 
Incidentally, as we look at the word wicked, think not that only unbelievers fit into this category. This term wicked can also speak of the functional atheist. In other words, the person who lives as though there is no God. Having been in Christianity long enough, I know seasons of my life that I look more like the wicked than I do than the blessed. And so the Christian must continue to examine themselves to ensure that they do have a blessed assurance. To make sure that they are living a life that is in accordance with God, understanding that the ability to even live that life is because God has given it. God is the one who gives the grace for that. He is the one who pours the faith. The faith that we have in Christ is alien. It's not ours. It is God-given. And the reason that text says that in, in Ephesians chapter 2 is that so that nobody can boast that they save themselves. So that all glory goes to God. This is the contrast between the blessed man and the cursed man, the godly and the ungodly, is that the blessed man understands that his nourishment, his sustenance, his life is dependent on God, while the wicked thinks that he did it all by himself. This is the contrast that we see here, that they will not stand in the judgment. And it says here, but, and will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Again, there's two ways you could look at it. If you, if you take the first judgment as a temporal judgment, as a right now ongoing judgment, then you must see this as the assembly of God's people, the church, the synagogue, where God's people gather together, which says that there's no comfort for sinners among God's people. There's a sense where that could be true. Where if we're really living a life that is glorifying a God, sinners come into our midst and they are convicted. Amen? That's true. There's some truth to that, right? We, we become either convicting or contagious. They either walk away and say, that's too much for me. Or they walk in and say, I want that love. What is this love that you are experiencing now? So you're either going to be convicting or contagious. So there's that piece. Or you can see this as the final gathering, which I think plays into the fullness of the text. The final gathering of all God's people as wheat, the wicked will not be found. They will not be in the midst when God's people are finally collected of all eras, of all generations. They come together before the throne of God, worshiping God for all eternity. You will not find the wicked in their midst. I think that's what the text is saying. And he says here, the last contrast... For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Every time I read that passage, I often think something's missing. I would think if it's a one for one, that it would say God knows the way of the righteous, but doesn't know the way of the wicked. Does that make sense? Like that, that would be a one for one correlation. That's if you, if you take the word know to mean just awareness or knowledge or understanding of something. Some texts actually translate this that God watches over. In other words, this is a presence and a preservation of God. God has a preference for his people, so he preserves his people. And so in his preservation of them, his knowing, because the word know, yadah, has to do with intimacy, an intimate relationship. I have an intimate relationship with these people, so therefore they are saved from the final judgment, but I don't have a relationship with the wicked, therefore they perish. That's how I take this text. That the, 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 the knowing, whatever that is, is juxtaposed to the perishing. And so whatever this knowing is precludes the believer from perishing. 
And whatever this perishing is, precludes the wicked from being known. And so it's not so much that I know the Lord, but it's better that the Lord knows me. If the Lord claims you and there's an intimacy in there, there's a koinonia, there's a fellowship, there's a friendship, there's a, there's, there's a camaraderie, if you will. There is a connection, there is a love, a delight, a meditating on the Lord, then you don't perish. Which is why I think the first judgment is a final judgment because this also says not just that the wicked perish, but what does it say? The way of the wicked. The sort of lifestyle, the system of the wicked. But that doesn't happen in this day and age. That happens in the future when the Lord finally does away with sin once and for all. Hebrews says it this way. He first appeared to conquer and to die and to be sacrificed. Now he's coming back again to finally do away with sin. The Lord is coming back finally and faithfully to forever, once and for all, remove the power, the presence, and the penalty of sin. Does that make sense? And so the thrust of this text is that the righteous who delight in the Lord, who meditate on him, are the blessed who will not perish. The wicked who delight in the counsel of the ungodly and walk in the way of the wicked, they will perish. This is a great evangelism tool. I've never looked at Psalm 1 as evangelistic in a sense, because it essentially is telling you that there are two ways to live. Right? You, you know that, that, that sort of evangelistic sermon of two ways to live? There's two ways to live. You are either blessed or cursed. You're either godly or ungodly. This theme finds its way throughout the entire scope of the Bible, which is why Psalm 1 is very important to understand and not just the Psalms, but the Bible, because the themes that are in this one, one chapter, this six verses, emptied out, unpacked, and we haven't even scratched the surface of it, flows throughout all of the scriptures to point towards the Messiah, the true blessed one, the true one who is not just, I love the way that the text, the, the, the Corinthians says it, Adam was a living creature, Christ was a life-given creature. And not creature in the sense of creation, but he, he, he not only lives, but he gives life. The picture here of the word is, is the life that we have in Christ. That he is the life-giving one that we are anchored in. Such a blessed person, such a happy person is anchored in the Lord. He abides. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Which means with me, in me, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Who waters you. Who nourishes you whom you are asked to meditate on because he is the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the originator and the completer. You do not enter into the race without him because he's the originator and you cannot complete the race without him because he's the completer. This is what we see in this text this morning. We see the condition of this man as blessed. We see his conducts that he will not play with sin. He would not get near sin. You know, the Nigerians have a saying, if it's not good to eat, it's not good to smell. If you're not going to eat it, don't smell it. Don't sniff it. Don't get near it. Don't pass gold. Don't collect money. Just go straight to jail. He doesn't make any compromises. He doesn't allow the corrosion of sin to begin to eat at his soul until he can't recognize himself. Conversely, while he doesn't do those things, the one thing he does do is he delights in the Lord and he meditates, therefore. 
He, he anchors himself in the law of the Lord because that's what nourishes him day, like, day and night. Just like the lion who doesn't know when his next meal is coming, he eats the word of God like it's the last time. He consumes it so much so that he's consumed by it. He meditates day and night. And then we see the comparison that because he is meditating day and night, he is likened to a tree that is strong and stable, not because he's good on his own, but because he's anchored in the streams of water that nourish him day and night. And he is contrasted then to the wicked who are not nourished by the Lord. There are two ways to live. Choose this day if you will follow the Lord or you will follow yourself. There are two people. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, no, your will be done. And our will will always end us in destruction. But his will will sustain, not just now, but into the life to come. Eternal life is not yet in the future. It starts now in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I know that it's cliche to say, but we are yet to even scratch the surface of all the implications of this text. We thank you that you have given us examples um, that we don't have to just abstractly know who this man is, but we see this man, Jesus, this God-man, the first of all, the firstborn, the first of creation, the creator of all things, the word made flesh, the true happy man, the true blessed man who has blessed us with salvation and intimacy with you. We thank God that we don't have to stand in the judgment in our own righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to come to you in our own merits, which are useless, which are but filthy rags in front, in the hands, in the presence of a holy God. You are righteous, you are holy, you are perfect. Our only hope, Lord, is to rest and trust in the work, the finished work of your son. And so, Father, we pray that our condition would be blessed. We pray that our conduct will be holy. We pray that in the interim, as we even live in this world, that we would be compared to trees who are established in you, firm and fixed. We pray, Lord, that we will live such lives that you are glorified and that the world sees the distinction between the people of God and the people of this world. We pray that our life, God, will convict many and yet convince many of your goodness. We ask, God, that you would keep us. Now, Lord God, I pray that the preacher would be removed from the memory of your people, but that your word will abide. And that your word would nourish us even as we leave this place. And that we would be happy and that it would be said of us, happy are those people who trust in the Lord. And Father, we thank you. We praise your name. And all God's people said, amen.